my name is Richard Vincent. I come from a place that speaks a foreign language called English. <laughs> so I'll speak slowly. <laughs> I come representing an organization called Prime Partnerships in International Medical Education, and it is a great delight to be with you all. I come with my senior colleague, John Geeter, who's the international director of this group, and together we'll be giving this presentation, joined also uh, as well uh, by Dr. Vinod Shah, who uh, runs the ICMDA. And we're going to be sharing in this topic of leave oneself behind. Could I say that having been here for this uh, conference, we have been hugely inspired delighted and energized and have enjoyed fellowship with many people. I hope that's been your experience. It's been a great time. So before we start, let's commit this session to the Lord. Oh Lord, our Father, we thank you that you have given us the grace to know you and to join together in this weekend. We thank you that you have empowered us uh, to know you and to take your word to many. And we ask your help now, Lord, as we consider ourselves in relation to your service knowing that it is your glory whom we seek. It is your power that we work with. Uh, it is your love that we want to convey to others so they may know you. Help us in these things, Lord, as we meet and talk together. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, mission being sent out with a very real purpose. Sent out usually away from the comfort of home and the community of home to do God's work. A uh, mission to bring to an estranged people good news of health and salvation, of God's love to them, of God's personal love to them. I wonder who you think in the years gone by has been the greatest missionary doing that. I vote for the Lord Jesus. I vote for the Lord Jesus who left the comfort of the, of the Trinity in heaven, who came to an estranged people in a different world, and who came to bring a message of personal healing and salvation and love personally, and went through all the suffering that that necessitated. And I thought we might think through that just as an opening to our discussion, because our attitude in his work if it is in that way too, leaving home to proclaim good news, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And what was that? How did that look as we read in Philippians? Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. From the Godhead who created all, to a servant, serving all, and ultimately at the cost of his life, for us. Looking out uh, as we travelled by plane, I thought again of how it is that our Almighty Father can know the thoughts of every person on this planet now as we think them. Here's the prayers of millions at once, created just a speck of the infinite universe that we can inhabit. And it reminded me how great 
great, almighty this God is. And that is the almighty status of Christ, who humbled himself to be a servant and washed our feet. It is overwhelming when we stop to think of it. And we are given the privilege of following him in whatever work he calls us to do, being humble and obedient. And Paul, in his letter of Philippians, goes on to detail some of that humility and service with these words. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, do we get comfort from his love? That's our real resource when we're feeling empty. That's our real gift that we have to pass on. If we have any comfort, and I hope we do, from his love, daily, minutely, any fellowship with the spirit of his power, any tenderness and compassion, how gentle and comforting that feels, even in the vastness of infinity, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. It's been great to be here amongst people united in spirit. It is a criticism of members of the church by those outside it when they see division and disharmony. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each one of you should look not only to your own interests, not to be ignored, but also to the interests of others. That key word, humility. And in our discussion in these next few minutes, we want to look at some of the thoughts about leaving things of ourselves, things that are very much part of ourselves behind when we go to meet the needs of others and tell them about Christ, live out his life before them, that might get in the way of our real witness to his love and his humility. That's what we're about. This is a man in a hat. And this is a man in headphones. <laughs> I'm John Geeter. I work with Richard in Prime. Uh, this was me many years ago, as you can tell. I had hair in those days. And um, I've never used this in a talk before, but it just seemed appropriate to the subject. Because I want to talk about that hat. I, um, I had the privilege as a medical student of also being allowed to, to learn to fly as a pilot with the Royal Air Force which was fantastic. It gave me an excuse to go off and miss lectures and fly Her Majesty's airplanes. This particular time I'd been allowed to be co-pilot on a huge transport command plane flying out to Africa. And this is in North Africa. Um, But that hat had sat in my wardrobe as a boy. Uh, All my childhood, it was my father's hat. And he was a Royal Air Force officer during the Second World War. Uh, air traffic control and I thought one day I'd like to wear that hat (laughs) and um, so when I I got my my, uh, wings examination I received a scroll from Her Majesty the Queen of England saying my dearly beloved John William (laughs) Geeter gosh wow (laughs) 
a love letter from the Queen. Gently <laughs> um, <laughs> below I love that. Um, and, and appointing me as a, an officer and um, giving me command over those troops assigned to be under my command, who weren't really very many. Uh, but um, I, you know, to start with, I put on that hat with pride, gosh. And, and then I started getting embarrassed because all these regular airmen were saluting me. And there I was, a medical student, sort of going out to fly for fun, really. And um, so I, I took to actually not wearing my hat around the, around the base. And um, shortly after I stopped that, I got summoned to the uh, base commander's office. And he said, you're observed improperly dressed. And I sort of checked my trousers. And, um, <laughs> and um, then I thought, gosh, I've just been dating his daughter. You know, so... <laughs> So I hope it was nothing to do with that. Um, but um, he said, you were not wearing a hat. And I said, yes, sir. He said, would you mind telling me why? And I said, well, I, it embarrasses me, you know, seeing these, you know, serving, serving men, uh, many back from, you know, overseas parts where they were involved in some degree of, of danger. And they were saluting me. And I said, I, said I, I don't feel worthy of that because I'm just a medical student. And he looked at me as if he chewed on a lemon. And he said, he said, salute you. Nobody would salute you. He said, they're saluting the Queen's Commission. Saluting the Queen's Commission. And, and I thought in this discussion, it's, it's so... How do we marry this wearing the king's commission? In fact, it did strike me. This was actually my father's commission. It was his badge. He'd won it. You know, we have our father's commission, which we have to wear with pride and with honour and with dignity. And yet, whatever is achieved, you know, who would salute you? Without that authority, without the power, without the prestige, without the backing, without the honour that comes from God, we can do nothing. And really and truly, it is that balance between getting taken away with my own achievements. And golly, if you serve overseas in a difficult situation, the difficulties will be immense. But then the sense of achievement is fantastic. You know, I worked in some fairly difficult places in my early life. And had great difficulties, but the sense, wow, I've done something. And we had our 45-year graduation reunion, and so many people had just gone through their medical careers. And I, I've lived. <laughs> I've lived. God has given opportunities of life. But what I've achieved has not been me. The bad things are me. But the good things are because of that commission we wear from the king. And I thought just, my dearly beloved, that's the love letter we have from God. My dearly beloved, I send you out. And, and as I was looking at that picture, I remember a conversation I had with a, an Indian army colonel at the time of the Pakistan-India war. And he was saying how 
he had to range his artillery guns. And to do that, he needed somebody really competent and brave to go forward into enemy territory to spot where the shells were landing. And he said he could only send somebody really trustworthy and brave. So one of his better officers he would summon and say, I want you to go there. Most never came back. And he said, these men would stand there. He said, I felt awful. But in war, it has to be done. And I would say, I've chosen you to do that. And I would say, thank you, sir. You know, missionary service is costly. It's costly whether we stay here and actually stand for Christian truth. Or if we go to darkest parts of the earth and do the same. It can be costly. But we wear a commission and we're people under orders. But from somebody who loves us, dearly beloved, I've chosen you because I trust you. It's a great message. Hand back to Richard. Thank you. Sorry about the technological interchange. I wondered if you had noticed it was John Geekser when I first put it up. I'd like to tell you about somebody else. This is just a simple story, as it were, of uh, a very great missionary friend of mine, uh, but as an example uh, of the business of leaving oneself behind, leaving those things you associate uh, with the world uh, that is not going to help when interacting with people who are serving abroad. Um, which you don't want to get in the way of that message of love. Uh, you want to do what Jesus did, which strikes me as still remarkable. He came and identified with us completely. Jesus came and identified with us completely. And I always find it fantastically encouraging to think that wherever I walk, whatever circumstance I meet, Jesus has been in that sort of situation before. He's actually ahead of me, wherever I've got to go. And that's great. So in terms of identifying with the group that you go to, this uh, is uh, a lovely guy called Keith, and uh, this was taken uh, just next to the Ruinsoru Mountains between Uganda uh, and uh, Congo, DR Congo now. And the uh, building on the right was a wonderful asbestos hut one of the eight which formed this magnificent hospital um, in the middle of rural Uganda. Uh, and I went there in the very late 1960s, and this is when the photograph was taken, and that's Keith, who qualified in medicine just a few years before in the UK. And he went there to set up a missionary hospital. And you can imagine the setting, I'm sure, getting involved with the local community, which had no other medical service in the middle of a very deserted place with very few resources and very many patients. Now, that was the 60s and that was a couple of years ago. In a similar location, Keith had been there for 40 years and more. I was rather surprised when I turned up 
having seen him there 40 years before. The African colleagues with whom he was working were equally surprised uh, that anybody could have been there 40 years. But still there, still in that same position, having become an eye specialist, having got engaged with the community, having lived in the simplest of buildings with cold water, one shower, two rooms for that time, and supporting up to 20 African young men at a time for their education and training them to take part in the specialty which he developed of eye surgery, which he now runs extensively throughout that country. There all the time. And Joseph, in the background there, was one of many young men who became very familiar with not only eye surgery of a simple sort, uh, but eye replacement for children with uh, retinal carcinomas of various sorts, retinoblastoma particularly. So just that persistence of being in the community in a simple manner, very different from his early life in the UK and South Africa. And that's just as an introduction to this question that we want to consider together. When we seek to identify with those whom we're sent to serve, whether it's locally to a different social group or whether it's a long, long way away to a different community entirely, a different race, a different culture, a different temperature, a different lifestyle, what do we need to consider that we might need to leave behind of what our experience of life has been so far? Well, one obvious one, of course, is language, the challenge of learning a very different language. Straightforward for some, extremely difficult for others, time-consuming. But it's not just, is it the, 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 the vocabulary, the way of saying hello, the way of communicating at a level for getting ordinary things done. It's the more complicated business of language, of what meaning lies behind what is said. And I want you just to travel with me through the interesting exercise of this lady. And I'm going to get John to tell you about this lady, just from the point of view of the importance of language. lady was one of the <coughs> uh, Nepali people who came to help build a hospital in eastern Bhutan where I was uh, pointed. Amazing how, how you get asked to do things that you had no training for. <laughs> you know, I was asked to design <laughs> a 45 bed hospital and staff quarters for about 70 staff, operating theatres, everything. And I, th I thought there'd be an architect, but no, no, no. So you draw it, Doctor. And it, well, it was still standing until the Indian government came and replaced it with a huge replacement, but it, um, it served the people for 40 years. And we employed the local labourers, the itinerant Nepalese labourers. This one's a Sherpa. And um, we, we, we weren't allowed to pay them more than the government rate, but we treated them decently. We gave them their rations at the beginning of the month, 
and let them pay when they receive their wages with no interest. The levying of interest is, is a form of slavery. And um, we, we ran a school for their children so they could learn to read and write, which could give them a prospect of something better than their parents. And in return, they worked really hard. This lady couldn't work terribly hard. She had TB. But she typifies the, the, the suffering of these people who live from day to day with no assurity of a meal tomorrow. And um, my, my wife lived with these people. My daughter, her first language was Nepali. There were no English-speaking children. And uh, when I was away, as I was for about two months a year on the Tibetan border, um, going to remote villages, um, my wife's company were these women and she used to sit on the ground with our baby and they fed theirs and she used to talk and then when I was away she and my daughter spoke in Nepali <laughs> it was only when daddy came home she changed to English <laughs> I spoke Zonka which is an impossible language <laughs> and I can remember very little of it now but um, the, the, the revelation came one day when, when so many of these women would come to my wife who was a pharmacist, but there were some nurses in a clinic you know, a little way away, English nurses, the only other expatriates are part of the same project, but the new hospital site was some distance away. And, um, and, she, and she noticed these women were coming to her rather than to the nurses for advice. And she said to one, why, why don't you see the, the nurses? They're very good. They were good. And this woman said, ah, oh, Memsap, they don't speak my language so they cannot understand my heart. But you know my language. You understand my heart. And that identification, now, you know, the, the, the real thing is, if you're going to a place on a short term, how much effort should you put in? Difficult. If you're going for a week's teaching, as, as many of the work that we are involved in now, supplementing other people's programs with a week of intensive teaching, you can't possibly learn the language. But... I think even my experience is even learning a few words of a language, showing that respect to the people, makes an enormous difference. Just to throw in, I, I love teaching Nepali because I've got enough Nepali left that I can understand some of the discussions, but I can also simulate, you know, patients' responses in that language. And it just makes such a difference. So I, I would say, <coughs> we can say everybody in the world speaks English or you might say everyone in the world speaks American. I don't know, but <laughs> I, I suspect the second is actually true because most overseas people we meet do speak with a slight sort of this side of the Atlantic accent. <laughs> that, that, that's called a normal accent. Oh, that's called normal, okay. <laughs> well, they don't speak with our particular sort of abnormal English. <laughs> but it, it, it does make a difference because identification with people is what Jesus did. He identified with man. You know, if we go over thinking, oh, well, everyone speaks English, that's fine. And you get terrible things done when people do that. There was a story, there was a book I read on, on language for missionaries, and it quoted a missionary, I won't say which country he came from, but um, it quoted a missionary who spoke in Japan. And his talk was on the three ships of God's navy, which was fellowship and worship and something else. And, of course, it just doesn't make sense. You know, so, you know, we really have to honour the people by respecting their language. I, th I think that's the first thing.
Of course, uh, I find that uh, getting the language right applies even in our own practice uh, in the UK in terms of how we relate to patients, because language is, is more obviously than just the words. It's the thinking behind it and where people come from in terms of their pattern of thinking. So as part of what we do, uh, we talk a little bit about what the patient thinks. Because when they hear our words, they apply their background thinking, knowledge and understanding and perspective to them. So I want you to join me in just a little game here. What does the patient think when we say, I'm sure your palpitations are nothing to worry about, but I'll just refer you to the hospital for a checkup. Uh, the waiting list is only about three months. What does the patient think? I think the doctor's pretty happy. He's got a pretty happy diagnosis, you know, 80% sure. But let's just make quite sure that's good medical practice, get a specialist referral, just to make sure it's okay. He's done a good job. What does the patient think? Sorry? Yeah, this is my heart. Okay, so you're 80% sure it's okay. Well, that's 20% unsure you're okay. That's my heart. That's an important bit of me. I reckon, you know, if it doesn't work properly, I die. Okay, uh, three months. That's pretty short in waiting list times around here. I could drop dead tomorrow. That's too long. So I've seen many, many patients. And uh, I, yeah, I know that they're in a cardiac surgery, as a cardiologist. Uh, they are petrified. Hearts are bad news if they go wrong. And you may know that it's fine. You may even know the pain isn't heart pain. But to them, so how do you say it? We've got the right language as a language. But in terms of a language of understanding, taking account of where the patient is, is a different game. Where is the person you're talking to coming from? What are they hearing when you say something? Here's another one. Since you've had a TIA, you'll need a statin and hypertensive, like an autoimmune aspirin. Uh, actually, some people also use an ACE inhibitor as well. Great. Very good medicine. You know, there's nothing like cardiology for getting through the pharmacy at a rate of knots. What does the patient hear? Nothing. It's <laughs> the answer. What? Either that or all those medicines? I must be really ill. You know, I've had a little tiny thing. It's got better. That's fine. I've not got any symptoms. I'm great. And then you've got to tell me, I could take 12 tablets a day with big names. And in the packets, there are terrible side effects. So I must be ill. All I heard there was aspirin. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, because that's already there. Indeed. Let's have one more. I'm afraid many people feel... Do you get patients who come who complain of feeling tired? It's a universal disease. It's like, um, you know, I'm really busy today. So tomorrow you're not really busy? I'm really busy this week. 
Well, come next week. I'm really busy that week as well. Uh, come to think of it. I was really busy every week, you asked me. So feeling tired like that. Um, if somebody says to me, and they're obviously well, I'm feeling tired, I say, great. That means you're really living. <laughs> However, what about this guy? I'm afraid many people feel very tired lots of the time. I do, especially on operating days. I don't care if you feel tired, just the patient thinking. You know, I'm terribly sorry. Actually, that's not what I'm here for. <laughs> what does the patient think? What does the other person think? The other side of the conversation. I think we can very readily fall into innumerable traps, particularly if our cultural language is different, knowing what folks hear when we say things. Uh, and it requires a lot of attention. Well, we've been talking a lot. Thank you for listening. We haven't finished because we want to join you in what we're discussing now. So, can I ask you all this question? In seeking to identify with those whom we're sent to serve, what do we need to consider about leaving behind? What is it we might have to adjust our minds, our lifestyles to do so that we really are alongside these folks as servants alongside these folks not because we come with a great wonderful us we come with a great message of God's love for sure how do we present that uh, in a way that we don't get in the way by what we take with us so we're going to ask you if you wouldn't mind to in groups of maybe three or four chat together a bit and we'll spend about five, maybe ten minutes on that. And then we'll have some feedback, see what our joint ideas are. Can I call you to order? It, it, it is grievous. It, it really is sad to stop conversation. These sessions are too short. You know, but carry on with that discussion afterwards. It was obviously really fascinating. Can I just take some, some feedback from, from different people? I've just listened into groups and they've come up with fantastic, fantastically right things. So who, who would like to share something? We spoke about being sensitive to culture. Yes. I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we coming to America, it's a different culture. I mean, you know, it, in, in a Christian group like this, we're very similar. But even so, you've got a different language, <laughs> different expressions. We, we've loved being here with you, I must say that. It's been fantastic. But, you know, do, do and I was saying to this one group, on that same thing, Make sure you've got a friend there in that culture. That's why we're called partnership in international medical education. We only work with a partner. And we say, if we do things wrong, if we're culturally inappropriate, tell us. You know, and then listen to what they say. Sorry, there was a... Yes, and added to your culture also, the, the culture may not be the same. You may have <coughs> similar identifications in a country or nation. But you can go 30 minutes away in a lot of cases or an hour away and, and it's, it's much different just as it would be here in Louisville, Kentucky versus a rural area. Yes. The identification of the culture itself and the area you serve 
Yeah, did, did you hear that at the back? No, just that, that, you know, the culture in one place you might be in might be very different from that just an hour's drive away. Where I built this hospital in East Bhutan, you could see seven different language areas. And, and I dealt in, in my first post there with Tibetans, uh, Nepalis, Dukpa Bhutanese, and a variety of itinerant people, each of whom had their own set of cultures. You know, you, you, one size does not fit all. So that's another very good point. Yes? No, I, I, just, I think everyone heard that, didn't you? Yeah. Um, I went to Terry Dalrymple from Che, his talk, and he says, if you give a lecture, people will nod. <laughs> but if you sit with them and say, well, what, what's your problems? How are you dealing with it? What resources have you got to, to meet that? He says, then they will own it and change will happen. I think that really, yes, you know, we, we can go. I, I, I was just saying to this one group, I went in with such, you know, you can imagine, bumptious 25-year-old doctor who knew it all, RAF officer saluted, <laughs> you know, and I thought, uh, you know, giving great sacrifice going where we were. Gosh, wouldn't they respect what I'd given up? And um, the church group I was with, the Nepalis, they sat to worship. I came from a Baptist thing, you stand and you sing hymns in respect to God. Oh boy, did I try to make them stand. And Do I wish that's one moment in my life I could actually reverse and go back? You know, we do have to be careful to listen. And if people are doing things in a way, why are they doing it? You know, because often there's a good reason. Sometimes it's not a good reason. And you can discuss together whether it could be done better. But I think that's really, really important. Listen. I get to facilitate a lot of student groups over just short term. And uh, one of the things that was quoted in the description is that clinical imperialism that you can bring with you. And especially with students, you have to be careful because you have a lack of training. And sometimes because... uh, you may be uncomfortable with your lack of training, you may project more of that clinical imperialism to protect yourself, yeah. uh, if you will. And so just guarding against that, especially uh, if you're a student or, or, or a young professional. And, um, anyway. No, I, I think that's right. Um, I think we're going to have to abandon the feedback there. It's very short, and there's a wealth of experience here. I wish there was some way we could pool that and and share it. In fact, if any of you want to email us with your, you know, things that your groups came up with, you know, maybe something we can compile and, and sort of put into a module on our website. We'll put the website up on the end, and all of you are very welcome to look at that. There is a thing called Prime Network that you can join there just by signing on online to receive regular information, newsletters, a monthly commentary on some aspect of uh, from from one of the journals, but looked at from a Christian. Uh, whole person perspective so um, be very welcome all of you to sign up onto that with no no fee no commitment no nothing except you just sign up a simple 
very, very broad declaration of intent to practice in the way of Jesus. Um, Vinod. Can I introduce uh, Dr. Vinod Shah, who is the General Secretary of the International Christian Medical Dental Association, having been a great man in India. (laughs) Your reputation was immense and founded um, one of the most dramatic things that's happened recently in India, a distance learning certificate in family medicine, which we're privileged to assist in, in some of the modules of that. But, can um, I ask you to share some thoughts? I'm a pediatric surgeon, and in Indian English, you translate that as a childish surgeon. <laughs> Um, I I want us to understand a distinction between resourcing and empowering. Um, The name of the session is Leaving Yourself Behind. Empowering is actually leaving some part of yourself behind. But resourcing is just the opposite. Um, resourcing produces dependency. We all know that. Um, you know, when you're resourcing, when you're giving people money, you have a sense of control, and you like that, because, you know, they're dependent on you, and you want that to continue. But when you're empowering them, what happens is you lose your lofty status, and that is really a problem. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Well, it's it's called understanding the Pygmalion principle. Um, Do you, have you, have you heard of Pygmalion, the Greek mythological guy? Um, Okay. Okay. Pygmalion was the king of Cyprus, and he sculpted Galatia, and he treated her as if she was really alive. He used to uh, feed her, he used to talk to her, he used to dance with her, and stuff like that, and treated her as if she was really alive. And then the story goes that goddess... Aphrodite saw this and she was very impressed. And she gave life to Galatia and Galatia became a real woman. So the moral of the story is if you treat someone as if that person is alive, that person comes to life. Um, <clears throat> now Bernard Shaw used that and he wrote his book you know, this, uh, the play Pygmalion, on which was the uh, movie My Fair Lady. You know, it was based on that. Uh, we know the story of My Fair Lady, how she was, uh, she, uh, was from, a, from a slum. You call that slum in England? 
and uh, she's she spoke uh, cockney which is supposed to be very poor english but when <laughs> professor henry higgins saw her he said i will make her into a society lady and the way he did that was by treating her as if she was a society lady and by treating her as if she was there she actually became a society lady and uh, so that is empowerment and that is what we have to do uh, when we go uh, as missionaries our most important goal is to empower people is not really to resource i mean yes resources will be needed but the primary goal is to empower <clears throat> I think that's a very important distinction. One of the great problems with a lot of short-term mission is people go and say, oh, we've done great things, we've done so many cataract operations. Now, if that's part of a program that's being run there and they say, please come and do this, that's fine. But say, we're going to team, we're going to come and do it, often is not what's needed. Equipment. Sometimes, you know, you know, there's so many broken down x-ray machines and vehicles and things because the parts are not available. They become a burden. But the real thing is, if you resource, it, it, it's needed to resource if that's part of empowerment. But just resourcing, we feel beneficent. It makes us feel, oh, we've given this. But, you know, the most important thing is to make people believe in themselves and believe they can do it because ultimately... Even if we go for several years, we leave. Unless we leave something behind that's lasting. And just very briefly over the last few minutes, I'd, I'd like us to look at the missionary call very carefully. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Oh, sorry. Where have I gone there? Oh, that's right at the beginning. Sorry. Um, but we, we, know, we know the story, don't we? He, he said, go, find the man of peace who lives there. The man of peace, the man of shalom. What is shalom? Shalom is reconciliation. Disease is, is where things come apart, isn't it? Uh, the bacteria overwhelms the immune system. The cancer cells grow out of proportion to their, their need. You know, so, so disease is part of that. But so is uh, conflict in society. So is uh, poverty and wealth. And the word that Jesus used, he said, go stay with that man of peace. Now, the man of peace, by definition, was not a disciple. He says, find the person who shares your heart to see that reconciliation, that healing of society, and work with him, stay with him. And, it, you know, really, that, that is the crux of it, partnership. Find people in a place that share the heart. We're in a global society, there are very few places untouched. You know, so look where there's somebody who shares the desire, because they're going to be there long after you go. 
and it's empowering them to be Christ to their community. And then Jesus said, what did he say? Build a church there. Build a church for me to come in and preach at. Did he say that? No, I, I thought for many years a page for my Bible had fallen out where Jesus said go into all the world and build churches. I, d- I didn't find it. You know. <laughs> um, and he said go there. What, what did he say to them to do? Luke 10. What did he say? Even preach? No. Heal the sick. Heal the sick. Using the word esthenin. My Greek isn't very good. But, but the word that means weak. Restore strength to those who are weak is actually what the literal meaning is. And say, the kingdom of heaven has come to you. The restorative work of God in the world. Building the kingdom. I said, I said to a group of pastors I was with for lunch one day, uh, they were talking about revival. And I said, do you mean by revival when your churches are so full that people queue outside to listen to your sermons? Yes. I said, that's not revival. I said, revival is when a woman can walk through the back streets of this city at two o'clock in the morning without fear. It's when I can go out and leave my front door not just unlocked but open and know no one will steal. That's the kingdom. And what we have to do is to build that kingdom. You know, so much has gone into what we're supposed to do, building churches and, and that type of thing. God's concern is for the whole of society. There are people throughout the earth who are well-intentioned. They may not share our faith, nor did the man of Shalom share the Christian faith. Work with them. Work with them. Find the common ground. And the spirit of Jesus will affect them. Because the law that God has written in their hearts is allowed to operate. That's Romans 2, isn't it? They says, even the pagan can be saved when he finds himself obeying, doing of himself that which the law commands. Because he's obeying that law that God has written in every human heart. I believe our task, where we go, is to actually allow that release. Allow people's hearts to be open to God. Because there's that desire, I believe, implanted in every heart. We have to open it. We can only do that if we do what Jesus did. To come down. Dwell with us. And this applies whether you go to the remotest part of Papua New Guinea or somewhere like that. Or just downtown here. There are people out there crying out. To be loved. To be cared for. And I think that's the, the great thing we have to leave behind. We have to leave behind our own reticence to love. There's a, a Canadian a Christian medical speaker called John Patrick. I don't know if you've heard John Patrick. Many of you will. He um, introduced me to a series of books uh, about Midwest America. And one of these books, is, is his favourite character is, is, is a lady who's a village school teacher called Miss Minnie. And he says... Um, Miss Minnie went to college many years before and had learned uh, techniques uh, to get children to learn and tricks to get them to behave. But when she came to this, this village, she forgot those tricks and techniques. But she had two endearing, enduring characteristics which had endeared her to generations of children and their parents. She loved children and she loved books, and she introduced them to each other. 
Yeah? I believe that's our calling. It's our calling. Downtown Louisville. Papua New Guinea. Damascus. Wherever. We are to love people. And to love God. And through our love of our medical skills. I think we need to love medicine. But love is as an instrument by which God can bring that reconciliation and introduce them to each other. If we, if we are without love, we cannot even start. If we love people, we want to know how they work. We want to know their fears, their ideas. I mean, one of the things we teach in Prime very much in communication skills is ascertain what are the ideas of the patient, what are their concerns. You know, this, this, unless we do that, we can't even start to treat them properly for compliance or even understand their symptoms. And if we go anywhere else, those are the questions we need to ask before we start to tell them what to do. And I hope we'll never tell them what to do. But we'll allow them, with us, to work out what should be done. So, I think we need to finish. Um, there are some, some discs. We've we managed to copy a few discs um, of some other modules that we, we teach. We find useful in um, you know, some of the teaching we do for medical students and juniors in different countries in various parts of the world. And we've put some of them as presentations on a disc. Uh, I was going to copy a lot, but the machine broke down. So there, there are some there. So if you could share them, do, do take them, watch them, pass them on if, if you find them helpful. There is a handout there uh, of instructions that we give to, to people going with Prime of you know, what we expect them to do in this, in this way of leaving themselves behind, both <laughs> leaving baggage behind, but also leaving something of lasting worth behind. So do, do take that. And there's some other literature about Prime, and we're delighted to keep in touch with you. Thank you.